Hi there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss questions brought up by reading through the Bible. And we also discuss your questions. So my name is Corey. And I'm Matt Locke. And today our reading through Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV was Exodus 22 to Leviticus 8. So we are also reading through the Bible this year. If you're not reading through the Bible with us and you want to, then check out BibleDiscoveryTV.com for the reading plan and, and all of that. So. Uh, Yes, yeah, so Exodus 22 to Leviticus 8, we're going to constrain ourselves to questions that pop up when we're reading through this. So obviously the Israelites have already come out of Egypt in the Exodus. They've been at Mount Sinai, they've received the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and now what happens next? So that's, these are some of the questions that we want to deal with. All right. And I have yeah. some questions off the cuff that we've had sure. some viewers write in about a, these couple of things. It was a summary of these questions. It deals with Exodus 23, mm -hmm. 31, 35. Why did Israel have to observe Sabbath years? Ah, Sabbath years. Right. I know, as if, as if, like, okay, I don't know about you, but a Sabbath weekly sounds really nice. Like you work six days, <laughs> yeah. rest the seventh, but the, when you get to the Sabbath year, and I'm, I think it's Exodus 25, 23, talks about Sabbath years. Um, it, it talks about it later on in the scripture as well, but for our purposes today, Exodus 23 talks about the Sabbath year. So every, every seventh year, the Israelites were supposed to allow their land to rest. They weren't supposed to plow it and plant it like they normally did. Uh, and there, there is a listed practical purpose for this in 23, which was to allow uh, whatever grows to like allow the wild animals to eat from it, allow uh, the disadvantaged among you who don't own fields, allow them to glean whatever grows there and eat from it. So there's kind of like this social practical purpose for it. Uh, and then, I mean, you can talk about crop rotation. You can talk about all these potential scientific things for it. And, yeah. uh, and, and add to that though, is that that's that whole like small little glimpse of Eden. They're trying to restore Eden back, right? Right. Letting yes. things go wild because that's God right. has now begun his plan of salvation for humanity. But that's right. kind of that's also where I think it naturally takes us right. because the Sabbath itself, this day of rest, symbolized how Israel was now God's people. They were going to be like God in that they were going to rest one day in seven, just as God chose to rest in creation. But it also harkens back to that time period in Eden where mankind was busy cultivating the garden and God was resting and, and um, resting from his active creation, his mm. active work in creating the world. Um, and of course that was lost uh, when Adam and Eve sinned. So God is beginning his plan of salvation and this instituting of the Sabbath to Israel was a sign that this is the next step as well in God's plan of salvation for humanity. So I think that the Sabbath year is just that on a broader scale as well. I, I know that it did have social implications and value, but I think that on a, on a wider scale, this was just, again, making Israel different than the nations. Well, yeah, and also too, after 49, Years. Yeah, there's right. Jubilee years. You have the Jubilee year, which everything is forgiven, right? That's like the ultimate year of atonement. Yeah, there's like kind of a, sense. an economic reset. That's right. So Where Hebrew slaves are freed, yes. debts are released, property goes back to its original owner, which then, of course, would help Israel um, maintain their tribal territories. Right. Because they were 12 tribes. Interestingly, right? this is kind of, kind of like off the cuff, but I, I've read some things and it's speculation because no one really knows the date, the true date or anything. Right. But if it's true, from the temple being rebuilt, the second temple, it's possible that if you track that by Jubilees around 8030, 
around that time okay. is a Jubilee year, which is when Christ died. Interesting. Which is really interesting. But yeah. that's, again, it's speculation. I don't really want to put too much stock into it. just think it's really interesting to add interesting that in there. Because it ties in theologically with some, some of the concepts there. Okay, right. I have another question. All right. All right. So, um, does the Ark of the Covenant operate like an idol? Or doesn't it operate like an idol? <laughs> well, because we see, right. I, I think this is an interesting question. All right, yeah. So, off the cuff, like immediately, I'm going to say clearly no. But but let me let me explain why I'm saying this because some people some people are going to be I think that the reason why someone might think this is because it has quote unquote graven images. I'm saying only it's also not installed really. in a temple. It's installed okay, in, a, in it's installed it. in a holy place, the tabernacle, and later in the temple. Yeah. Um, blood is sprinkled in front of it, like offered in oh. front of it, and there's a priest that that priests that kind of take care of it so okay 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 so that's i'm okay, making so, the case for okay so there's images <laughs> there's images on it. okay so for one let's just deal with the images and then we'll kind of move into there for one um it says don't make graven images of god right so not images themselves so it has angels on it right number so it's that's but the, that's I mean, the law or, so the or law anything else saying the law it's not deal just simply saying the ten commandments if anyone's uncomfortable with it looking like an idol it and it, it that, you know, the ark being of images, being made with images, it, it doesn't pertain to that whatsoever, the Ten Commandments whatsoever, but making graven images. Because, do you see what I'm saying there? Well, it does say about, like, other living things. You're not supposed to make a graven image for the purpose yeah, of worship. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly, for the purpose of worship. <laughs> I kind of you're not, Okay, you're not worshiping, you're not worshiping the ark, right? You're worshiping God, and ark is there, it's the mercy seat. What's, it's basically... It is a chest that contains elements, but it also God himself was reportedly on top between the angels, between the cherubims, right? Between the wings. Right. Came between. So it was a mercy seat. It was where God came. Not the seat. It's, it was the seat. It wasn't God himself. So they weren't worshiping the ark. Right. Right? Um, but anyways, sorry. I, I guess <laughs> you got to give it away. But I was, I was going to get there eventually. But you you kind of pushed me. <laughs> I to, pushed. You, I you apologize. Kind of pushed it. Yeah. Continue. Like All right. Anyway, so the point what I was trying to make was that if someone's thinking this question, you know, oh, it's it's got graven images, right? Well, they're not worshiping those graven images, right? And they're not graven because they're not of God, or right? And they're not designed for worship, right? So that's about it. So right. Anyways. Yeah, and I, and I think also, like, so kind of the whole point of the Ark of the Covenant is that God is not represented on the Ark of the Covenant. So an idol in the ancient world was a physical representation of a god, um, and the people. Base, they, they would do a ceremony to kind of possess the idol with the spirit of the God. And then they would take care of the idol kind of as a proxy of that God. So how many offerings they give it and how well they took care of it, then they could earn themselves favor uh, from the God that way because a part of the God's presence was in that idol and therefore could see how they were treating it, what it was doing it. But the the actual image of God is not on the Ark of the Covenant. That was kind of the point. And in the surrounding cultures and in Egypt, there's evidence that cherubim were seen as creatures that surrounded godly thrones. So it makes sense here, like that the cherubim were not the gods themselves. They were creatures that worked for the gods, that were lesser than the gods. So God's image is conspicuously absent from the Ark of the Covenant. Right. Um, but you are right in that it it was it was supposed to be a throne where bef 
above the mercy seat. That's where the presence of God is said to have met with Moses and met with a high priest, right? So it was this meeting place between God and man rather than it being an idol. And what's really interesting too is that um, it's an ark. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Ark is like a box or a chest, a chest of the covenant. The covenant, a copy of the covenant was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. Those, those tablets that Moses made were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so God's meeting with mankind was based upon them honoring that covenant that they had made. Do you mm. see what I'm trying to yeah, say here? So saying. it's like a physical representation. There's a physical ark with a covenant inside of it, a physical chest, because God's meeting with man is predicated on them having that covenant. That's why God is meeting with mankind, because they have that covenant. And later, physical later on, don't they begin to worship it too, I recall? Right. Yeah, but God doesn't... God doesn't, you know, beat around the bush when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant. When when the Israelites start start treating the Ark of the Covenant um, poorly, when they start treating it more like an idol, we see in Judges them taking it out into battle. Uh, but they've got this weird relationship with it, and God allows the Ark of the Covenant to be taken by the Philistines for a time. And there's this miraculous way that he gets it back, of course. Right. Um, but yeah, it's not to be messed with. No, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, whenever something else is made into an idol, like the bronze serpent, which we'll read about later. Um, it's it, destroyed. And, it's, and of yeah. course, we no longer have the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. Uh, it was it was uh, likely taken in one of, the, um, one of the military excursions against Jerusalem. Right. Relatively early on in the history of the kings, I think. All right. So I think that works for that okay. question. <laughs> All right, here's a question for you. Fair enough. Why did God command a tabernacle be built? Right. Why, why would God have commanded the tabernacle? This is a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are a few different answers for it. Um, we've already talked about how the Sabbath, how the Sabbath being instituted made Israel like God in a sense. He was their king. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, they would rest on the seventh day. And it's kind of hearkening back to the Garden of Eden, the paradise that was lost, the way things are supposed to be. And now we have this tabernacle and it becomes a meeting place between Israel and God. So again, when we look at the elements of the tabernacle, we've got pomegranates in the decoration, pomegranates on the bottom hem of the, of the priest's garments. So flowers and fauna, uh, cherubim, all of these elements we see were part of the creation narrative, part of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So again, we have this, we have this, this God beginning to save humanity through his covenant relationship with Israel, where now they have the presence of God, where Adam and Eve used to just have the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, that relationship was lost, and now through this temple, through the law, and through these sacrifices, God's presence is with Israel. Right, and that even becomes evident in John, in the New Testament, where it says, and, Christ be and God became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. That word dwelt is actually tabernacled. Right, It, it right. parallels tabernacled. Yes. So God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Yeah, he dwelt, so, he dwelt as he dwelt among Israel in the tabernacle, he dwells. He dwelt among us in the body right. of Christ. That's right, and I think it's interesting parallels with uh, 
even inside the Ark, like we were talking about the Ark, it has the mana and it has different bread, right? It has certain things. It has things witnesses, like, yeah. Exactly. Like remembrances of who God is and So the God's tabernacle, really, like even being made of skin, just really points to the flesh that's to come. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying here? So um, I really think it prophetically foreshadows as well uh, what's going to happen in the New Testament. Because a lot of the old laws, as Paul says and the Hebrew says, is a shadow of things to come. Yes. Christ is the substance. The Old Testament is the shadow. Yes. So there's a lot of symbolism that that comes in with the tabernacle and, and the furniture in the tabernacle. So yeah. I think overall it's a sign uh, to Israel. It, it, it's a sign to us. Um, and it represented the presence of God being among his people once again, which is right. very cool. Very cool. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. Let me see. What next? Do you have one that you want to ask? Or yeah, you want sure. Me to go for one? I got one. I got a viewer question. <laughs> okay. All right. And this is from Hannah. How is it Moses commanded Old Testament sacrifices, for example, in Exodus 29, verse 18, but others, and even God, deny them? Right. She's got a slew of verses, Psalm 40, verse 6, mm -hmm. 51, 16, and then Isaiah 1, verses 11 to 15, Jeremiah 6, verse 20, and Hosea 6, verse 6. Right. So what is the point of asking for sacrifices if God does not want to receive them? Right. Okay. Can I just read one? Because I saw this question. Which, I was which like, one are you reading? Okay. Read wait, first let me read her establishing sure. one. Sure. Which is Exodus 29, verse 18. Yeah, that's a good idea. So... This is in the middle of the consecration of Aaron and his sons, the priesthood. Um, and it's giving them instructions about it. And then in verse 18, it says, Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. So I think it's that pleasing aroma probably that she's getting, because she's like, oh, right. like it's pleasing to God. Right. But then in these other verses, it, it appears as if he, right. he doesn't want them. So what's with that, right? right? Do you want to read those other verses? Well, I'll read, I don't read off with one I think that kind of, Nails at home. Sure. And it's Hosea 6, 6. Yep. So I'll read that. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Mm -hmm. So really quickly right there, I think this gets to the heart of the issue. So what Christ is, what God is saying there is that he's not saying don't do the law that I commanded you. He's saying that his heart is for, in this instance, mercy, right? An acknowledgement of God in the sacrifice that you're doing mm -hmm. over the compliance and just observing the sacrifice in and of itself as if just following, you know, this set of this, uh, this uh, step, pro step by step process somehow is justifiable before God. And regardless of your heartfelt condition, regardless of faith, regardless of, you know, your your how you view God or anything inwards. So the idea here is not that, just to say it quickly, is not that sacrifice. God doesn't want sacrifices. It is strictly that He wants the sacrifices to be completed mm -hmm. by your faith, right in God. So the acknowledgement of God, He says that He wants mercy, He wants love, He wants sacrifice, um, uh, uh, sacrificial hearts or circumcision of your heart. So the long story short is that that's pretty much that. It's not just about complying and doing the doing the the law in itself and sacrificing the animal. Oh, they God's God God likes blood, right? And it says elsewhere. It's in I think in Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, it says like, oh, you think I like the 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 blood of animals? 
right? It, it, it's very clear that God's not desiring to sacrifice animals for the sake of killing animals. Yeah. Right? There's a bigger message being pushed here. Yeah. And what did you want to say? Yeah, no, and, and um, you know, two of the, the scriptures that she was having issue with, two are in Psalms, Psalm 40, verse 6, and Psalm 51, verse 16. And these are both Davidic Psalms. So in Psalm 40, David is talking about his role and his responsibilities as the king of Israel. Uh, and he says, um, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. So he's, he's, he's kind of contrasting their sacrifices versus heart. Um, and we know there were times in David's life because we have the benefit of the historical books, First and Second Samuel, where we see David, there were times where he was not allowed. Like it, it, it wouldn't work for him just to give an offering to be forgiven. Uh, there had to be um, repentance and there were consequences for his actions mm. as king. And then again, in Psalm 51, uh, David, this is after he was discovered uh, in his sin with Bathsheba and then killing, murdering Bathsheba's husband, um, <clears throat> uh, where... David is talking to God and he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So, and and later on, as you're saying in Isaiah, in some of these, these verses actually that she's quoting here in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets were chastising the people of Israel and Judah because they were trying to play both sides of the aisle. They, they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, where they were engaged in idolatry and breaking the covenant of God, but they were still offering all of their sacrifices and observing the holy days that they were commanded in the law of Moses. Right. And, and, and through them, God says, Absolutely not. Right, it's hypocrisy. This is not what I require of you. This is right. not what I want. It's not sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. You have to have that that intention behind it as well. You like like David says, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Mm -hmm. So the reason that later on Israel and Judah's sacrifices were despised by God was because they didn't have the right heart when they were approaching God. Right. So, and I think it's pretty clear as you begin to explore those verses that she was was quoting. I hope that clears it up. Yeah, I think so. I think that's mm -hmm. the heart of it too. Mm -hmm. um, I think what someone else might think, though, from that question, yeah, is um, not just the heart behind it, but like why institute sacrifices in the first place? Um, like, mm -hmm. why? What's the point? Um, and I think that kind of harkens back to your big question. So maybe we can even save that. Yeah, later on. I think so. So the, so the overarching, and I, and I forgot to do this at the beginning of the program, and I apologize, but the overarching question, the big question that we want to talk about today is that. Right. Like from, from our scripture reading in Exodus and Leviticus, because especially the beginning of Leviticus is very, like, um, it describes the different kinds of sacrifices and it describes how brutal they, they are. I mean, it sounds brutal to us right. in the 21st century in the West. Um, so we do kind of want to talk about that why, but there, there was one other question that we didn't get to yet. Yes. That I thought we could, I thought we could do. Sure. Um, 
And that is about the golden calf because that was a huge, oh, that was right. a huge narrative that happened in our reading this week. Yes. Okay. So Exodus 32. Yeah. This is from PJ. It says, did Israel really think that the golden calf had actual powers? Even the power to save them. Right. Okay. Corey, okay. this is more of an ancient cultural question. Right. Um, yes and no. So I talked about it a little bit earlier uh, where idols were, were supposed to be physical representation of a god. That like Israelite, like ancient people weren't dumb. They knew that they had created it. But they believed that the God could possess that idol and, and, and endow it with real power. Uh, so you offered things to this idol. You treated this idol really well. There's a lot of accounts in the ancient world of people dressing idols with the finest jewelry and the finest robes. Um, and, and because how you treated that idol was how you were treating that God, how you are prioritizing that God. So what's really interesting about the golden calf incident is that the Israelites had just come out of Egypt. So Egypt is their immediate cultural context. They had been there for hundreds of years. And a huge... Uh, called a huge religion in ancient Egypt centered around um, a, the cow mother goddess. Of, uh, her name was Hathor. And she was a providing, protecting God who, who took care of her children. Uh, so this is a really intriguing connection. It may not have been Hathor that they were trying to worship, but it's an intriguing connection because we're told in Exodus 32 that the Israelites believed Moses had been killed by God. So God had essentially brought them out in the wilderness, killed Moses, and now they were out on their own. But they had families, they had children, they needed protection, they needed provision. They had already been in, in a battle, uh, so they needed this desperately. So it makes sense that they would have reached out to a God like that. Uh, but so... No, they didn't believe the calf idol itself would protect them, but they they were trying to make essentially like a talisman, I guess you could call it, this this connection point between the spiritual world and our world where they would sacrifice and, and, and celebrate before it in order to try to get the favor and the attention of the God that they were trying to, trying to, they needed help from. Right. So, and, and I mean... Yeah, there's an interesting excuse that Aaron uses. I put it in the fire and it came out. Uh, it wasn't my fault, Moses. I, a lot of people are like, <laughs> why would he use that as an excuse? Yeah. Okay. There is a later, a later tradition in Babylon. I know they're far removed from Babylon at this point, but it's interesting to think of. Anyway, um, of when a craftsman would create an idol for a god, they would do this ceremony where they would ba basically ceremonially cut their hands. They wouldn't actually cut their hands off. They would pretend to cut their hands off and, and give credit to the creator, the creative god in Babylon saying like, I did, it was, I was kind of possessed by the creator god of Babylon when I did this. Maybe Aaron's trying to pull off a similar thing. Right. It wasn't really me. I kind of <laughs> threw everything in there and it just came out as the spiritual world did this for us. Yeah, yeah it's possible. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's thoughts. That's probably the most educated guess. Thoughts you know, it's on pretty Aaron's. good. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> on Aaron's ideas. Or oh. I, I got one for you. Before, sure. Before you do that one. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, this one is one that I had. Oh, okay. Just, okay, because I was interested in this. And I, we've talked about this before, but I want to know what you think, because it's been a while since we've spoken about this. Okay, I'm, I'm intrigued. 
Why did God make Moses' face glow? Oh my goodness. Especially when the elders' face didn't glow in Exodus 24. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, yes. Okay. Okay. So there's a few things. I'm, I'm going in my Bible because it makes me think of 2 Corinthians. But Right. Because okay. there are some things, I know like there's ancient cultural things, there's things in the Bible, there's Jewish tradition. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are kind of details around this. So right. where are you now? It's been, it's been a long time. Okay. So, I mean, that's Exodus 34. Yes. Where Moses' face glows after being in the presence of God. Um, so it seems like, like Moses was clearly shown more of God's glory than the elders of Israel were when right. they went up. Because it is true that, um, you know, uh, in Exodus 24, the elders plus Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu went up and they shared a meal on Mount Sinai and they were shown God. Like they saw right. God and they didn't die and it was a big deal. Right. But they didn't all come down glowing. But Moses was shown a, a special part of God's glory and he came down with his face glowing. There is a tradition that relates this back to Adam and Eve. And there's this theory that Adam and Eve glowed before they fell. And that's why they knew when they sinned, they stopped glowing because they lost the presence of God. And that's why they knew they were naked. That's an interesting possibility. Right. I, I don't think it has to be that. I think definitely they could have all of a sudden just had this awareness that they were vulnerable uh, because they were naked. But it is an intriguing thing. Now, <clears throat> I don't know physically why Moses' face glowed, but it's intriguing to think about like maybe humanity physically was meant to interact with the presence of God in some interesting way. Yeah, maybe that's why we have skin, we don't have fur. <laughs> there we go, I don't know. I don't know, guys. Um, but what I do know, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, uh, verses seven through eighteen. Seven through eighteen. I would encourage you to read Second Corinthians three, verse seven to eighteen. And he's talking about the the old covenant and the new covenant. Like he goes in verse seven. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of God because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So, he, he goes on to talk about how, um, yeah, at the very end he, uh, of, that, of that chapter in verses 17 and 18, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, in other words... He's saying, if even that old covenant came with glory that made Moses, it physically changed Moses' face and everyone around him could tell, then how much more the new covenant should bring about a physical, actual change in our lives. If we are filled with the Spirit of God, if his presence is within us, not just outside of us like he was with Moses, how much more should our lives begin to change in order to reflect that reality? And we should not veil ourselves as Moses had to veil himself, but rather live our lives in such a way that everyone around us can tell that there's something real 
about our faith, right. that we are different, that God is real and that Christ is real. All right. Very cool that right. the Apostle Paul. And to add to that, so why did Moses face glow and not the elders? Mm -hmm. I think also too, it does say, I know Moses wrote this, so, <laughs> but it was edited that Moses was the most humble guy in the, in the world. I choose to believe uh, that was an edit. Someone <laughs> added that in for Moses. Anyways, but, <laughs> but if he was, okay, yeah. so seeing the presence of God glowing, perhaps there's a relationship there as opposed to the elders who were not. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? So perhaps mm -hmm. there's a relationship there between someone who's truly humble, mm -hmm. seeing the presence of God, right? And having like some sort of uh, quasi uh, minor, like a uh, trivial form of glorification. Right. You see what I'm saying? Some sort of evidence of it uh, early on. Anyways, that would be my thought behind that. But either way, it's kind of still all up in the air and speculation. It is. Yeah. It is. But it is interesting to think about. It is. I like stuff like that. Yeah. Mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> Mysteries. All right. So should we jump into the Le sacrifices? Leviticus? Leviticus? Yeah, sure. Yes. Let's do that. Okay. Let us jump into Leviticus. Okay. So, um, Malik, I wanted to read this one to you. Marion asks, as we start Leviticus, please explain why so many bulls, rams, lambs, goats had to be killed and dissected for one family. I have thought many a time to be a priest in those days for years was an awful, smelly, hot, disgusting job. Also, where did all that blood get emptied at the end of the day and how? Okay. <laughs> okay, well, in terms of just the qu sheer quantity, I, don't, I think it actually pales in comparison to our grocery stores today. It might not be us. Oh. It might not be us. I'm you mean just, just our consumption of just meat. Just our consumption of meat. I'm just dealing with the, the many. How come they had to kill so many? It's like, okay, well. We kill more. I think we for kill. For sure. Yeah, there's like a billion chickens on the planet that are just like 86 per year. Anyways, uh, <laughs> my point here is that I think we consume much more meat on a regular basis. And that slaughterhouses that have to deal with that to package them. So in terms of quantity, yes, it might be smelly. I think it's also just ancient culture. You, you know, they didn't have your own house with your own shower, your own bathtub or whatever it is. I think ancient culture was just a lot smellier. Mm -hmm. uh, so just in terms of, you know, it not being the most pleasant environment, yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course not. It wasn't mm -hmm. that pleasant. Uh, so that, that would deal with the quantity argument. No, there's another other part, part to this. And what was that last sentence? Uh, where did all that blood get emptied at the end of the day and how? So like basically how did they deal with the well, the kind of they did clean up they element. did use it to sprinkle sometimes. Yeah, yes. on the Day of Atonement and, right. and for certain sacrifices they would sprinkle around the altar and then dump it out beside the altar. So right. for sure, like we don't know exactly how it worked. The the in terms of um especially back in this wilderness wandering period with the tabernacle. This is all we have. We don't have extra records written that have survived down to tell us how they dealt with it, like whether they took it outside the camp and buried it. Uh, I think probably something like that would have happened. Um, but I mean, from later on, uh, in the time period of uh, Herod's temple, like a, a time, the, the time of Christ, we do have Jewish tradition that talks about how they dealt with some of the blood and how they dealt with the altar because from the splashing, the altar would get really, really, really quite dirty. Um, and so we know in Herod's temple, there was systems of drains in the temple uh, that had flowing water that would carry the blood away. They would dump it in there. And we know that the um, or at least Jewish tradition says they would. And then also the altar was whitewashed at certain times of the year. 
uh, and the the whole area was whitewashed certain times of the year to right. keep that that cleanliness up. Right. Um, yeah, so that happened in Herod's temple, probably happened in Solomon's temple. Don't 100% know how it was dealt with in the, t in the tabernacle otherwise, other than it must yeah. have been dealt with. Yeah, and I, I, I know that, the, like I said, with the sacrifice, they did use it, some of it as part of their ceremonial uh, process and cleansing process, purification process. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the large portion of it, like you're saying, is either drained. And I know that they had such reverence for blood because life is in the blood. Yes. Um, and they were not allowed to eat animals with like unless it was fully drained of blood. That's right. So I would imagine too that there there would have to be a, a deep cleaning that would have to happen after that. Either way, yeah, I think it was just drained with you saying draining system. I don't know the exact answer because I think that's more of a historical answer. I, th I think you gave the best one. Yeah, and yeah. like who knows how that would have worked because the tabernacle was portable in the wilderness, right. right? So they were moving. I'm sure they would have had systems for it. And yeah. Maybe some Levites in training to carry stuff yeah, out. I don't suspects know. Suspects <laughs> maybe of some kind. Maybe, yes. Yeah. Yes, but it's an interesting question, Marion. Thanks for that, that one. That is. Okay, I got one from Linda. Yeah. Okay, so Linda asks, why were there so many rules for making sacrifices? Yeah. Oh, this is a big question because, like, we can't go into every rule for making sacrifices. One right. thing that I will say, two things that I will say. I think that by having so many rules it added to the sanctity of the sacrifice. This was a serious thing that they did. Sometimes it was a joyful thing that they did, like with the fellowship mm. offering, but it was still a serious thing that they did. Um, so that there, there, God wanted to have a relationship with Israel, but he made it very clear that certain things had to be followed. It had to be done in a certain way. Otherwise it wasn't gonna work because they were sinful humans just like us. Mm. And we see this really clearly this holiness of God and this unholiness of humanity with, and it's going to, it's going to come up but with the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, where they offered strange fire before God. So they still offered fire. They were trying to do their jobs, but they did it the wrong way. And that was unacceptable. They were killed for that. We're going to talk about that in upcoming episodes, but it's this same kind of thing where there's a sanctity around the sacrifice. You can't just kill an animal. Be like, Oh, I killed it for you. God, now I'm going to eat it there was a way that they had to do it. One other thing that I will say is I think it probably meant a lot more to Israel of that generation than it means to us today. Because, I say this because uh, in the sacrifices, there's, there's a sacrifice that specifically they have to also offer the liver, like they have to burn the liver. Uh, but in some of the surrounding cultures, the liver was actually used uh, for necromancy, for like kind of like reading tea leaves. But it, Israel was not lawfully allowed to do this. They had to offer it. So a lot of these rules surrounding sacrifices may also have been to keep Israel from some of the, uh, some of the pagan practices that they had already come in contact with back in Egypt and that they were going to come in contact with when they went into the land of Canaan. Right. So those are the two things that I would say uh, to maybe, I know it's not an exhaustive answer, but right. to maybe help get some ground there. It, this also helps if you're, if you were raised in like a liturgical Christian uh, environment. Mm -hmm. Some people call it high church and low church or whatever you want. Um, liturgy, what's interesting about it is that all the actions are symbols. And these symbols, these, they're basically creating patterns. And as you follow the patterns as they move along, they tell a story, not an actual like story, but essentially they get to a point, if that makes sense. Um, 
So a lot of these Levitical, the reason why there's so many rules that you have to follow, because if you follow them in the exact order, it creates a pattern, which then points to something. It creates a sign or something like that. Um, so I think a lot of these Levitical rules are patterns of symbology mm -hmm. and symbols, that whether or not they're prophetic, they point to Christ or, or whatever it is, and or whether or not they're even just uh, uh, culturally pertinent for the time. Um, but I think sometimes a lot of these things like that, uh, like I, I think that uh, someone who grows up in high church wouldn't necessarily have a problem with all the rules surrounding this. Mm -hmm. Because they'd be like, oh, because it symbolizes this. And when you have that, you know, if, you, if the bread puffs up, that symbolizes uh, Christ rising from the dead, let's say, right? Right. And, and 11 bread means Christ uh, is dead uh, when Christ died and whatever. So the point here is that like uh, the symbols in the liturgy just represent patterns of things that happened or will happen. And I think that you, you see that in Hebrews with it being, once again, shadows. Yeah. The, the, the law is shadows of things. Christ is the substance, and the law is a shadow of the substance. Um, but yeah, that would be my additional point on top mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this is going to be an ongoing discovery for me and you too. Like, as we spend more time in the scriptures, as we spend more time studying it, and I hope for you as well, like, this is an ongoing process of us learning about some of these I think uh, uh, like these are so far removed from our culture. Right. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that gives you some somewhere to start, some place, yeah, some different right. places to start thinking about it. Yeah. And yeah. then we have the Hannah. final question. Back to Hannah and the big question. Yeah, because Hannah touched on something I think, which the big question. There's two sides to this big question. So one of them. Mm -hmm. Is well, the big question is why sacrifice? Yes. Why? Okay. Let me let me yeah, let me sure. pump it up. Okay. Let sure. Let me pump up the big question. Let me sure. be bigger. <laughs> okay. okay. Why would God institute sacrifice in the first place? Why sacrifice? He is God. He could have chosen anything for the Israelites to do. He could have chosen anything for us hypothetically for for us to deal with sin. Why sacrifice? Specifically? Okay. So there's two angles to this, or it's a twofold question. One is the institution of sacrifices themselves. So why create an institution or a culture that sacrifices? Yeah. And the other one is why the sacrifice in itself? So one is, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So one is inherently more fundamental. Why the sacrifice in and of itself? Yes. Clearly the purpose, what's the purpose behind it? Yeah, what's the purpose of right. sacrifice? But why create a culture that does it all the time? Like why create it, make it an institution? Mm -hmm. Why not just do it whenever you need to? Mm -hmm. Why not, do you see what I'm saying? So I think that's the reason why it's a twofold question. Um, regarding the institution, and I already mentioned this before, what's the point of having rules and all these things? Well, it's pointing to something, Yeah. right? And so a lot of these uh, laws and the sacrifices are pointing to Jesus Christ. We know the Passover lamb uh, that just happened in Exodus, right? That points to Jesus Christ specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's a sacrifice that has to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's done in a proper order, even right. so for, as a form of memory here, you have the don't, you can't put leaven in the bread because you need to have it um, so that you remember that you had to leave quickly was the idea, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, um, Again, so it's, it, it boils down to something, you remembering something of a story or an event. And that's what these symbols do. And that's why there's so many rules behind them. So one thing is that it's foreshadowing Christ. Definitely. Who's going to come. Okay. Another one, I think that boils down to kind of the real reason why he has sacrifices is actual loss. So in other words, you can't, in the New Testament, Christ sacrifices his life, right? You can't even have a sacrifice unless you don't. Unless you don't even know what sacrifices are, okay? Mm -hmm. So you need to create basically like have people understand what it means to lose something 
um, as opposed to losing something that really means nothing to them, not an act right. of sacrifice. Right. So for instance, you, you see this uh, in the New Testament where people are just, hey, come up, buy a dove, go in the temple, you're just buying doves, right? Well, the reason why that's so bothersome is because there's no sacrifice in that. You can just buy a blemished dove and go ahead and go make a sacrifice. It was mm -hmm. all compliance. It's exactly the whole thing that uh, she's like, hey, like, what's the, I thought God didn't want this. Like, well, no, he does want sacrifice, but he wants the sacrifice of your heart right. that's involved in that. He wants the sacrifice of your heart as well as the object itself. So again, here, they, there was no sacrifice of heart. Just yeah. buy something, make a sacrifice, and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. right? And that was part of this whole thing. Um, so I think that those two are big reasons. And the other point I would say is, uh, which is what Paul called, Paul calls the law a guardian. And in this case, it's, it's a guardian of what, you would say? Well, a guardian of the people. God's preserving a culture so that the Messiah will be born into it. Right. And when you said, which is really, I think, really strong, that the number of rules creates sanctity, a sense of sanctity or holiness. I think that's spot on. Mm -hmm. um, because now it's not just informal, loosey-goosey, do whatever you want kind of thing. Oh, it works. It's like, this is God's pattern that he's trying to create. Yeah. And it becomes much more serious. Yeah. The more things that are stacked onto it, right, the much more holy and separate it becomes from your day-to-day -day life. Yep. You do the dishes. Oh, I put on gloves. Oh, I don't need to put on gloves, right? It's kind of like, you just have to do the dishes. But this is something that's holy. So it's something that's specifically made to be set apart yep. from every day. So there's way more rules that's involved, right? Um, as so I think that is that God's preserving a culture. So moving Absolutely. forward, and that's part of the institution. Why would God create an institution? So that Christ would be raised by this culture. Yeah. All right? Yeah, anyway, definitely. sorry, go ahead. No, no, definitely. And, and uh, I mean, what's the end game here? What's right. the end game with having a culture, having a, instituting a culture of sacrifice? I think the end game was Christ. Yes. Right? Like you're, like you're talking about. But what's Christ's end game? Why did Christ have to die? Like why what? couldn't he have just come in? And, and the end game is that this is life or death. This is salvation or damnation. Like this is, so the seriousness of of life, of the world, is emphasized here in, in this pattern of sacrifice, in requiring an animal sacrifice, you're realizing that life is, it, life is now death. And without a rescue from God, this is where it's right. all going. We're all go we're going to die. We're gonna die physically, and then we're gonna die spiritually uh, in, in the second death. And, um, so Christ being that ultimate fulfillment, not only of the institution of sacrifice, but of the very first sacrifice. Yes. You know, we know that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel were engaging in sacrifice. So that was way back when. These are one of some of the details that I wish we had more of, but the Bible right. doesn't provide more of these details right. for us. Right, right, How did they think about sacrifice? I don't know. I, I want to know. But... Um, it's this ultimate, Christ is this ultimate fulfillment of I can make this right. right. I can redeem you. And by doing it with life, you know, God's currency is life. Right. He gives life. He takes life right. away. This is a life and death issue. And, and so by instituting sacrifice and by just requiring sacrifice, right. uh, that it brings that to the forefront, the right. seriousness of this 
yeah. the end game being life. And we get that sense because they specifically say that life is in the blood. Yeah. That's specifically said. And not and just to add to that, so what is the thing that's destroying life? And that's sin. Sin. So yeah. what what boiling down to the ultimate purpose behind this, sin has infected life, is mm -hmm. the idea. So Christ, mm -hmm. right, comes, sacrifices himself to stop sin. Okay? That's the, that's the ultimate end game. But in that, what's really interesting is that what is the essence of sin? It's pride. What's the opposite of pride? Mm -hmm. Self-sacrifice. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, definitely. So repentance is a form of sacrifice, if that makes sense. Um, because you're repenting unto God who is the ultimate sacrifice. So what you have here is that you have pride needs to be taken down and it can only be destroyed, sin can only be destroyed through sacrifice, mm -hmm. self-sacrifice. So Paul says, make your life a living sacrifice. I, I think I'll quote that line every day the rest of my life. Romans 12, uh, yeah. Romans 12, always, because that living sacrifice, what does that mean? It means to re constantly repent, right? Constantly persevere and endure and to live your life like Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, when we say like Christ, it doesn't just mean the good days. It means the day that he died also, right? To participate yeah. in that. So I think that's huge. And I think that when we look at what sacrifice is, why sacrifice, like specifically, it's to defeat pride, to defeat sin. I think that, and you, you think about that, and that's the whole point of the, of the old laws were too. That was the whole point. It's like, oh, if you come, you can't, you can't make a sacrifice physically unless you sacrifice in your heart. Yeah. Right? That was the whole point. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's the, the quick answer. I don't know, we've been pretty long, but <laughs> that's the long answer. <laughs> the long, quick <laughs> answer. Yeah. To yeah, that. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I think that wraps it up. Uh, if you guys have any questions or comments, pop it down below. Matlock and I will be looking at, at the comment section this week uh, to, to kind of go back and forth with you and answer any questions that you have for now. Uh, I hope you have a really good week reading and studying, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.